morning. My name is Kaylee. Um, our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 118, verses 19 through 26. Uh, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in your eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, my name's Taylor. Would you please join me as we pray this morning? Oh, Heavenly Father, we have just confessed and that you would consider us at all is a miracle and that we would find in Jesus the one who stands in our place, who is weeping but loving us still is unthinkable. And so we now depend on you Uh, to speak to us, to root us in your word. May you give us ears to hear and help me as I communicate that your word would have its intended effect in our lives this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Well, would you please be seated? Well, let me tell you this morning uh, a little parable, okay? Once upon a time, there was a weatherman. And that weatherman said, on Saturday, there will either be two inches or eight inches of snow and ice. Either way, be prepared. Now, some people believed him. And some people went to the grocery store and they got a few extra groceries to have on hand just in case. But they believed him. Some people believed him and they wrapped their pipes so they wouldn't burst. Some people believed him and they put chains on their car and parked it at the bottom of the hill. Other people, on the other hand, did not believe the weatherman. And they did not wrap their pipes. And they did not go to the grocery store. They, in fact, just believed that dominoes would deliver when they were hungry, hoped their pipes wouldn't burst, and hoped they could get around town with ease. Now, let me ask you a question. Which person did the right thing? It wasn't the one who went to the store. Because some people didn't need to stock up. They had already stocked up. So that wasn't the right action. It wasn't the person who wrapped the pipes. Because not everybody had pipes that were in danger. Some people had already shut their water off earlier in the season. No, it was the one who believed the weatherman's report. Regardless of the action taken, those who acted rightly had one thing in common. They believed the weatherman. They had regard for the meteorologist's authority. And because of that regard, it produced really a litany of right actions that looked different to different people in different places. Now, those of you who rejected the authority of the weatherman did not produce right living. So I invite you to change your mind about the weatherman next time and believe him. Now the, point, the point of all that parable is this. The authority 
of the meteorologist is an invitation to us to believe him, to regard his authority as the means by which we will then enjoy the fullness of safety and freedom of life in the winter. And that same authority is also, it is an invitation for us to regard it. It is also an indictment against those who do not regard it. I told you so. I told you your pipes would break. I told you you would crash your car. I told you you would be hungry. Now this morning, Jesus tells two such parables with a similar conclusion. The authority of Jesus is an invitation to regard his authority and obey him, flourishing in the kingdom of God. And it is at the same time an indictment against those who do not obey him because they do not believe him. So the authority of Jesus, by which he rules all things, invites us to believe and obey him. Therein we would find freedom and life as it was meant to be. And at the same time, it is an indictment. It pronounces judgment against those who would refuse because they do not regard him. Now, as soon as I compare Jesus to a meteorologist, the the whole parable breaks down because I'm talking about one person who just reports the weather and one person, Jesus, who controls the weather. So it, it all breaks there. And so even when I say Jesus is inviting a response, the language is admittedly too weak. He's not inviting you as though, take take him or leave him. He just wants to be your friend. He is demanding the authority of of Jesus requires. He leaves no other right option, zero other right options than to submit, to regard his authority and to obey. Now, before we get into the parables that he tells this morning, we need to do a little bit of review because if you remember, Way back when, two weeks ago, we had just come off of the holidays and Jesus had, you, re- you recall, ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. The, the people had cried out the words that Kaylee just read a moment ago, Hosanna, save us, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And as he sits there in Jerusalem, he gets up and clears the temple. He steps out of the city, comes back into it the next day and sits in that temple, teaching in the religious leader's seat. And when we opened the scriptures two weeks ago, these religious leaders approached Jesus and said, where do you get this authority? Who gave you the right to step into our house? And then thinking that they could trap Jesus, they were instead trapped by him because they then plead ignorance. Jesus Jesus aligns himself with John the Baptist's authority and they plead ignorance because they're afraid that if they say, oh, his authority is from God, then Jesus would judge them and say, well, then why didn't you believe him? And if they say, oh, it's from man, then the crowd would attack them because the crowd held John to be a prophet. The stories today continue then Jesus' response to these religious leaders. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 and follow along as we resume in verse 28 and we will conclude the chapter this morning. 
But in view of these parables, these parables have in view this conversation that Jesus has been having with these religious leaders about authority. And in this first parable, we will uniquely see the invitation into the kingdom by having regard for the authority of Jesus. Follow along in Matthew 21, verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the second son, the other son, and said the same. And he said, I go, sir. But did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. What comes into focus through this parable are two responses to authority. And in the parable, the authority figure is the father. And the father says, go and work in the vineyard. A definitive, clearly defined action. The first son says, no. No, I won't do it. And then he has a change of mind, it says, and goes and works. The words that come out of that boy's mouth are unthinkable. They are appalling, particularly appalling in a culture that upheld as the legal code of the nation, honor your father and mother. He displays an utter disregard for authority, but changes his mind. And goes. The second son says much more respectfully, like, we're okay with this. Yes, I will go. But then he does not go. I say, we're okay with it, but they'd be okay with it too, because the words honored the father who spoke. But when Jesus presses the question, we have to deal with, we have to wrestle with, what then does it look like? if we rightly respond to authority. We have to grapple with the demand that the authority places in our lives. And the question that Jesus, he's essentially asking, which son responded rightly to the father's authority? Which son did the will of the father? Which son lived rightly? Now, what's the metric? How are you going to know? What's the metric for measuring right living or a right response to authority? Is it internal motivation? Because I can't see internal motivation, I can't judge internal motivation, so we'd have a hard time answering the question. Is it maybe the quality or the quantity of the work? Is it maybe that there's a hierarchy of responsibility or roles? Like like one son was going to be the vine dresser and one son was asked to pick up the clippings and one is better than the other? How are we going to tell? How are we going to know which son lived rightly? Well, it's pretty simple, really. Which son obeyed? Which one went and did what the father asked? 
and clearly. And the religious leaders get this right. Okay, this is, he's not hiding anything anymore. Jesus isn't. The first son, he is the one that actually went and did the will of the Father. So when you ask who did the will of the Father, it is the one who did the will of the Father, who obeyed. Now, you, you might look at these and say, but there's other options, right? It's not just a say no and do it and a say yes and don't do it. There's also a say yes and do it and there's a say no and don't do it, right? There's some other options that are like more extreme. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's zeroing in on, on really the crux of this parable, which is not an absolute obedience, which, by the way, no human has done in relation to God. And there was a, uh, a double negative. I will say no, and then I will harden my heart and not do it. But Jesus is zeroing in on something here that is found really in those two imperfect options in the middle. He's zeroing in on the change of mind regarding the authority of the Father. One said no but changed his mind. The other one said yes, and if we give him the benefit of the doubt, that he actually did intend to, changed his mind negatively. Changed his mind away from the father. So the determining factor for these two sons was their willingness to yield, to relent, to change their mind about the father. Now look at, look at it now through that lens. The first son, his words are so clear, I will not. Literally, I do not want to. I won't. Any of you with two-year-olds have heard those words. At first, he is defiant, resisting the authority of the Father. But the change of mind is a softening. Uh, a remorse, perhaps, an, an affection, a recognition that, oh, I actually do want to please the Father. It's really a change of mind about the Father. The second son, at first he is submissive, but his action demonstrates what he really thinks about the Father. In his words, he shows honor. In his actions, he shows dishonor and, in fact, compounds the dishonor. Now, in the case of this first son, we might call that change of mind a repentance, which repentance is where you turn from evil toward good, where you turn from away from something toward something. So you would turn away from... You would be facing away from God and you would turn toward it. A change of mind, a change of direction. Repentance is submission to a king, turning from rebellion toward obedience, turning from dishonor to honor. In repentance, this change of mind, you see it in the parable, it it precedes, so it comes before, and it necessitates then right action. So which one comes first? The, the son going to the vineyard to do the work or the son changing his mind about the father and then obeying? 
Now, what's the point of all this? Let's listen to Jesus as he continues. He interprets this. He's he's not being vague anymore about who he is, about who these religious leaders are and what he is here to do. We continue in verse 31. Which of the two sons did the will of his father? They said, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, Matthew's talked a lot about the kingdom of heaven throughout his writing. They are interchangeable terms for that long-awaited presence of God where he would rule among his people. And he says here, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom, into the presence and the rule of God before you. He says, they're the ones that get it right. They're the ones that get in. You thought you were at the front of the line, but you have said yes, 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 and you have not obeyed. Your heart is hard toward the authority of God in your life. Now import some of that, the parallelism here, uh, into the story to see it play out. With the authority of heaven, John the Baptist came announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand to repent. That was the right action. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, who would have heard his voice, had already said no. And they had already evidence that they had said no by the dishonor of their lifestyle. But when they heard the announcement of John, they had, like the first son, a change of mind and believed him. The kingdom of heaven is actually here and we are invited. In repenting then, everything about them was transformed. The religious leaders, on the other hand, had said yes, 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 yes to the promises of God to His people Israel throughout all of the Old Testament. But when John came, they did not regard His authority. And so they did not obey. And even when they saw the tax collectors and the prostitutes get up and live now this full and free life, transformed before their very eyes, They did not change their minds and believe. In fact, they recoiled. They doubled down at the abomination that those people would ever get a second chance. Now, here's where we find ourselves in this story. All of us, by birth, have inherited a rebellion, a resistance against authority. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. So all of us have already said, no, we will not obey. And the invitation this morning is the same as it was a couple weeks ago, is the same as it will be in a few moments. Will you regard the authority of Jesus? Will you respond to this invitation, this demand that he places on your life and yield to him as the king of the kingdom of heaven? 
we're in the book of Matthew to examine who Jesus really was and what he really said so that we can make a decision about how we will respond to him. And right now, he's saying, there is no other right response to who I am than to regard my authority and obey. In effect, he is ruling out, good teacher, (laughs) he's a good teacher, he's ruling that out as the response that is appropriate to him. He's ruling out charismatic leader. You don't get to have a charismatic historical figure in your history books and leave him there. The authority of Jesus requires, it invites, it demands a response that regards his authority. But any way we spin it, any way you spin this parable, you're going to have to reckon with the authority of Jesus. The worst people had to. The best people had to. And the invitation is to enter then, enter the kingdom of heaven, just as the tax collectors and the prostitutes, by showing regard for the authority of Jesus and submitting to His way. Now, many of us, we look at our qualifications. We look at our qualifications as either our justification, God will accept us into His kingdom because we are qualified, or as our assurance. And we say, oh, but, I, but am I really, like, good? And Jesus is not looking at your qualifications. That is not what is happening here. He is looking at the change of mind. He is looking at that inner posture that says, Will I yield to the authority of another king? Because maybe uh, we are all looking at our qualifications, but maybe you expect that you're at the back of the line, like you're the least likely person to get into the kingdom of heaven. Like if God would have regard for humans, you're the last one he would have regard for. And here the invitation into the kingdom of heaven comes through regarding simply believing Jesus' authority, that He is who He says He is and does what He says He has done. And follow, walk in His way. Get up. And in this kingdom, you get in first. And you come and flourish and find life as it was meant to be lived. The tax collectors and the prostitutes Get it. And even this morning, Jesus is inviting you to change your mind about Him. To see Him as He really is. To interact with Him as He really is. The King over all the other kings. Now it's clear here that it is belief which produces obedience. It is only after a change of mind that this first son obeys. If you regard the authority of Jesus, if you respond rightly to His authority, if you have a change of mind regarding His authority, then you will walk in His way. You will do what is expected and required in the kingdom of heaven. But if you do not change your mind to regard His authority, well, He tells a second parable. And really this parable zeroes in on that second son who said yes, 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 and did not obey. And here it is that Jesus indicts those who resist his authority. Look with me at verse 33. Jesus says, 
Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and they beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. All right, so Jesus is zeroing in now on the, the second son, the one who says yes, yes, and does not obey, who does not yield, who does not regard the authority of Jesus. What happens to them? Now, I want to highlight for you, and I think Jesus does a, a very clear job of this, but the care of the landowner in planting this vineyard. He has done everything possible to prepare it, to care for it, to protect it, that it might flourish. And then he goes away. And typically it would take several years for a vineyard to begin to produce fruit, and so it's appropriate that he would go away and wait for that time and lease it out to farmers who would continue to prune and harvest or prune and prepare it for its first harvest. And while he was away, those farmers, well, they took care of it. And when it was time... For that first harvest, for the fruit to come from this vineyard, he sends servants to oversee the harvest and to return the portion that is due as rent for this vineyard. Well, it doesn't go so well for those first servants, does it? So he sends some more, more than the first time. Like basically a small army of servants. And the same thing happens to them. And when he sends his son, thinking they will have regard for my son. My son who is the closest approximation of my own authority as a father. What do they do? They drool over the inheritance, perhaps thinking that the owner will consider this vineyard just a wash and cut his losses after they kill the son. And so they take him outside the vineyard so that when his dead body hits the ground, the vineyard is not unclean, so that the fruit is not unclean, so that they are then free to harvest at will. And at the end of the story again, as with the first parable, Jesus asks another question. What or when the owner of the vineyard comes, notice the operating assumption here, he is coming. He's not cutting his losses. 
He's not thinking that the vineyard is now worthless because it's, it's not worth the expense. He is coming. What will he do to those tenants? And they reply, he will put those literally evil people to an evil end. And he'll find new tenants who won't withhold from him the rent that he is owed. Well, let's do a little work for a moment here because these religious leaders, they knew their Bibles. They knew them, they knew them way better than we know them. And so we miss things. Like we miss how provocative the parable is because of how intimate they were with the Scriptures. Particularly intimate with their self-identification as the hero in the Scriptures. And what Jesus is doing in this parable is he is drawing forward imagery from Isaiah chapter 5, which says this, and it's on the screen behind me. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I shall tell you what to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars or thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. But behold... Bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And when Jesus is importing this parable into his discussion now with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, it interprets itself because they remembered God had a vineyard that he planted and cared for. And it was his precious, prized people, Israel. And while he was not present among them, you remember he appointed them uh, tenant farmers, religious leaders who would lead the people in the way of Yahweh. And when he sent his servants, the prophets, to look for the people of Israel, to lead them back to producing the fruits of righteousness and justice. The landowners, or the, the tenants, those religious leaders, beat and killed and stoned the prophets. And instead of receiving the fruits of righteousness and justice, the purpose for this planting, God only finds the fruit of bloodshed and an outcry. So when God sends His Son into the vineyard, perhaps hoping, thinking they might regard His authority as the closest delegation, the strongest delegation of authority I could send. Guess what they do to Him? They take Him outside the city. 
and they kill him. And so when Jesus is asking them the question, what should happen to those tenants? Guess what the religious leaders are doing in their reply? They're pronouncing their own judgment. And they might not realize it. I think they realize it. We find out in a moment that they have absolutely every clue of what Jesus is communicating here. They're not in the dark. But probably as soon as the words left their lips, pull it back, pull it back, pull it back. He treats them better than they deserve. The fulfillment, remember that's a major theme in Matthew's writing. The fulfillment here of Isaiah 5 is found in Jesus' indictment against the religious leaders of the house of Israel who have resisted his authority. But he isn't quite finished with them yet. He isn't playing soft anymore. This parable is a dagger and he's becoming quite explicit in his denunciation of these religious leaders and he is not done with them. Okay. After they respond by pronouncing their own judgment, Jesus continues by quoting and fulfilling Psalm 118 for them, which Kaylee read a few moments ago. And here's what you need to know about Psalm 118. It's a happy psalm. It's a happy psalm about how wonderful the steadfast love of the Lord is, which brings salvation for His people. And probably all throughout their history, the religious leaders had identified as this happy people who would just bask in the steadfast love of the Lord and experience His salvation. But hidden there in verses 22 and 23 of Psalm 18 are these words that Jesus quotes, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And he is identifying the religious leaders not as those who bask in the steadfast love of God and receive his salvation, but as those who have rejected the cornerstone, who have rejected the means by which God saves his people in his steadfast love. The cornerstone is that stone which holds the building together. You have it, you're safe. You don't have it, your building crumbles under the ice. And Jesus is highlighting that He is that stone. He is that salvation. And He has not been recognized. And He, in fact, has been resisted by these religious leaders. They have not only, they've not only missed Him. Okay, that seems almost passive. Like we, we just weren't looking for Him. They have known Him. They have witnessed Him. And they have still rejected him. And on that account, they are no longer invited into the kingdom, but instead they are indicted for their failure to submit to him. And what you need to hear right now, at this moment, is that the the stone imagery that Jesus pulls forward is really throughout the scriptures. And in Daniel, there is a stone identified as the, the Son of Man, who is identified as Jesus, who rules and crushes the nations. And in Isaiah 28, there is a stone that is placed by God so that the faithless would trip, 
so that the faithful would get the salvation, the security of the stone, while those who do not believe, who are just hoping that their qualifications or their works will make them right with God, would trip. In Romans 9, the stone is Christ, and Israel has stumbled on her, on him, because of their works over and against their faith. In 1 Peter 2, the stone is again identified as Christ, and they stumble on him because they do not obey the word. But it seems here that Jesus is drawing a, a really a straight line between his words in this parable in Isaiah chapter 8. If you want to look at verse 13 through 15, please do. But Isaiah chapter 8 really connects the authority of God to either the security that the stone provides or the calamity that the stone brings. And it says this, The Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become for you a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. To rightly regard God's authority is to find this stone to be a sanctuary, the thing that holds everything in order and in place, but to disregard the authority is to be crushed. And that is what Jesus says in verse 44. That is his warning, his woe. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I think that the sense is clear in this old proverb. If a stone falls on a pot... A clay pot, if a stone falls on a pot, woe to the pot. If the pot falls on a stone, woe to the pot. Either way, woe to the pot. Whether or not you reject Jesus, or Jesus rejects you for your hard-heartedness and your failure to yield to Him, woe to you. Now, we may never say with our outside voices, Jesus, I reject you, okay? We would be, we have too, too much respect to do that, or, or maybe we're just too open-minded to even rule him out. But here's what we do say, and if I'm honest with you, here's what I am prone to say. I'll take you, Jesus. You give me eternal life, you forgive my sins, and you leave me be. You let me be the king of my life. I will let you be a king in my life, and we can be kings together. And when you tell me to do something, I will say, I'll remind you that I was king first, and I'll let you in, and then I will tell you exactly where you will fit in my life. And in that, we are just like the second son. Yes, 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 please. We'll do what you say, yes. But we do not submit. 
And in that, we are like the tenant farmers. Yes, yes, yes. We will take care of your farm. We'll work for you. But we won't give you the fruit which you are owed. You see, we cannot interact with Jesus on our own terms. In earnest, we ask the wrong question. We ask, how do I fit Jesus into my already full life? We ask, what's the, what's the bare minimum for me to get by and, and enter the kingdom of heaven? Where I've been told there's flourishing and safety and security. If you hear these parables and wrestle with the authority of Jesus, it becomes quickly evident that you, that he, you don't fit him into your life. He fits you into his Now, I don't care whether or not you believe the weatherman next time. I don't believe the weatherman. They're saying it's going to be 65 and sunny next week. Not a chance. <laughs> I don't care if you submit to his authority and stock up on groceries or freeze your pipes or, or pull out your swimsuits from the attic. I, it doesn't, I don't care. But I care that you believe Jesus and respond to his authority against all other authorities, that she would withhold nothing from him, that New Life Church, Oregon City, would be a people who are united in their devotion to Jesus, in their love for him, their faith in him that demonstrates itself in, an, in a, just an all-in life. It holds nothing back. Because there is one throne in your life, only one, Who will sit on your throne? His authority demands that you go all in on Him. And when you go all in on Him, you will give your life away in submission to Him. And you know what? It doesn't define what that looks like. And that is so freeing here. The parable defines obedience as working in the vineyard. He does not say, if you work in the vineyard, all of you must be pastors or missionaries or work in child, child ministry. He says, all of you are workers now in the king's, the landowner's vineyard. In the second parable, the fruit that, that the, the landowner is looking for is defined in Isaiah 8 as righteous, or Isaiah 5 as righteousness and justice. Two huge buckets of what it looks like to live in the kingdom that are so broadly defined that, that you're not pigeonholed now into some mode of operation. You are free, literally free to follow Jesus. And as you follow Him, submitting to His authority, He will define what that means and what that looks like specifically, uniquely for you. Well, finally, at the end of... All this, these parables conclude with verses 45 and 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So these parables do not have the effect that the parables have had through Matthew's writing up to this point where Jesus was 
blinding people. He who has ears, let him hear. But not all have ears, so only some will hear. Here he is making it as plain as can be. These parables have, they are far more provocative than we can understand. He is not holding back. He has escalated the situation and raised the stakes. And by his questioning, these religious leaders have admitted the failure of the second son. And they see that they are that second son. They pronounce judgment on the wicked tenants And they see, oh, we are those tenants. And they refuse to change their mind and submit. And they know they're not the first son. And then if you know how the rest of Jesus' life goes this last week of his life, you know that they become then the self-fulfillment of the parable about themselves because they set their face to arrest him, to try him, to execute him on a cross outside the city, just as the wicked tenants did to the landowner's son. So learn from these parables and be wise. Respond this morning to the invitation of Jesus to submit to his authority, to go all in on him, submitting every part of your life to him and be warned by the indictment against those who would not. Would you pray with me now that the Lord may help us as we trust and follow Him? Jesus, to call you the King and to belong to your kingdom really leaves us no choice but to submit to your authority. But our eyes really need to recognize you, to see you, as you really are, and our minds need to be changed from our default disposition to subvert you. And our lives, our wills need to be controlled to guide us in the way of the kingdom. We yield the throne of our lives to you and you alone. So would you help us now to walk in submission to you? Amen.